Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, a genetic link for late-onset Alzheimer's. And updates from the ground at COP27. I'm Nick Pertridge-Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Before we start the show, there's something I've always wanted to be able to say, and that is we interrupt this broadcast for a late-breaking story. And that story is the first launch from NASA's Artemis program, which happened about an hour ago, very early this morning, as I record this, well after the show is normally put to bed for the week. It is a story, of course, we wanted to include in the show, so I set multiple alarms to make sure I didn't miss it and watched along with Alex Witsey, who's been covering the Artemis program for Nature and who joins me on the line now. Alex, the launch happened at 1.47am Eastern time in the US. You must be exhausted. I am, but that was just amazing, right? To see this incredibly huge rocket soaring and at night too, a nighttime launch from Cape Canaveral in Florida. So just this giant pillar of flame, so much bigger than what we're used to seeing with other rockets, even from the days of the space shuttle, from the Falcon launches that we see these days from SpaceX, just a pillar of flame rising. Uh, That was just amazing. Well, let's break it down then. So NASA is now in the Artemis era, and today saw the launch of the Artemis 1 mission. But when we talk about the Artemis rocket, let's make sure we know what we're talking about, because there's actually two separate things being tested here, right? Yeah. So what happened today was it was the very first time NASA has launched this enormous rocket called the Space Launch System, which is meant to bring people back to the moon for the first time since the Apollo era. And it's carrying a capsule called Orion. So to get people from Earth to the moon takes a enormously powerful rocket. And so today's launch was to test that. So it's an end-to-end test, brand new rocket, capsule it's carrying, the whole system, the whole package. So to be clear then, today was an uncrewed mission then? Today was a test. Yes, there were no humans on board. There was a Sean the Sheep doll, there were some mannequins, there were no humans on board today. I mean, obviously a successful launch, but getting here has been a bit of a struggle. The 29th of August was the first attempt to get this 
Artemis 1 mission off the ground. But of course, there's been a lot that's gone on before then and subsequently up until today. Yeah, this entire story has very, very deep roots in NASA trying to figure out a way to get back to the moon, not just since August, but really since decades, it's been looking to build a way uh, to get back to the moon. So they've been working on this very large rocket for a very long time. They have put all the components together, tested it in various ways. And then the question was, when were they going to launch it? You know, years ago, they thought they were going to launch it in the late 2010s. Then it sort of just kept pushing out. And then earlier this year, they thought they were going to fly for the first time. It got delayed for various reasons in August and September, some hardware problems at launch. Then there were two hurricanes on the launch pad that delayed it further. But it got up tonight. And there were some concerns with the last, obviously, devastating hurricane that actually some parts of the craft fell off. Yeah, this is a pretty badass rocket. I don't know if I can say that in a nature podcast, but it literally went through a hurricane a week ago. There was one hurricane where they rolled it kind of back into the garage, but then there was a second hurricane where they just left it out on the launch pad, basically because they ran out of time to roll it back. And it had some damage. And I have to say, a number of us were quite skeptical that it wasn't going to be damaged more. Perhaps there's unseen damage we haven't seen yet in this flight but it seems to have weathered it okay well let's talk about what happens next then so obviously we've had the launch but that's part one of a multi-stage process yeah you and i are talking right now the rocket has launched successfully it has put this capsule into orbit around earth and at the point that we're talking here we're waiting for it to do this is like terminology from the apollo days in the 60s what's called a translunar injection burn basically the burn to get it on the path to the moon that hasn't happened yet but it should happen in the next hour or so. And then this capsule will go sort of around and behind the back of the moon. And it's going to go very close to the moon's surface, as close as 80 miles, and kind of do this looping orbit around it for 26 days, if everything goes well. And then the plan is it will return to Earth and splash down off the coast of California. Mm. And I mean, while this is clearly a test mission, the first mission, There is actually some science on board. What can you tell me about that? Yes, there's a bunch of different science that's going to be done. For one thing, Artemis 1 is carrying a bunch of little satellites that will throw out and do science. Some of them will go map water on the moon, which is kind of a big thing right now. But also on the capsule itself, this thing that's designed to carry astronauts in the future, there's uh, experiments that look at radiation in deep space and how harmful is it to astronauts? How dangerous is it to be flying through deep space where there's all this radiation, galactic cosmic rays, solar particle events, that kind of stuff. There are two mannequins, one of which wears this protective radiation vest, one of which does not. They're both in the female form. So one of the things about Artemis is Artemis is named for the Greek goddess, who is the twin sister of Apollo. One big theme of the Artemis program is to fly female astronauts to the moon for the very first time. We've only had men walk on the moon to date. And the idea is to see, can these protective vests help protect women who are more vulnerable? to radiation as astronauts. I mean, you're talking about the future there, Alex. And of course, today is very exciting. But people will already be thinking about the next steps, right? Artemis 2, Artemis 3. When can we maybe expect them and what will they be doing? So Artemis 2 will be like the flight today, but it will have humans on it. So it'll be the first crewed flight. It will have four astronauts on it and it will loop around behind the moon, just like Artemis 1, fly around for a while, but not land and then come back to Earth. Artemis 3 is the really big one. That will be the landing. So NASA plans to put astronauts into Artemis 3 and fly it to the moon and land at the moon's south pole. And this would be the first time that humans return 
as far as NASA is concerned, since Apollo 17. When all this happens, that's a great question. It all comes down to money and technology and all that stuff. But NASA is talking theoretically about Artemis 2 in 2024 and potentially landing on the moon in Artemis 3 the following year, 2025. I mean, you mentioned costs there, Alex, and I think it's worth talking about because the figures involved for the Artemis program in general and for each mission are absolutely staggering. Four billion a flight is the estimated number. That's a lot. And these rockets are not reusable, right? So they sort of burn up and a lot of the components just fall into the sea are not reusable. And uh, yeah, you need a lot of money to make that happen. I and mean, putting that to one side, I mean, what do you think today means for NASA and for space exploration? I mean, lots of companies are entering the space game now and in many cases, you know, launching or aiming to launch smaller bespoke rockets and missions certainly in terms of moon exploration and here is nasa with a rocket that is you know 100 meters tall is it a statement of intent do you think it's all about humans and our experience in the cosmos right because there are many many nations and even private companies now that are going to the moon but they're sending robots they're sending little landers to do stuff on their own Today was all about human exploration and can we as a species go back into space and take those next steps to move deeper into the solar system. So think about it. It's been 50 years since astronauts came back from the moon. And since then, NASA has focused on first the space shuttle, just kind of going up and going around Earth and coming back, and then also living and working aboard the space station, which is also in Earth orbit. So we haven't gone beyond kind of our cosmic neighborhood in many decades. Today was all about opening that door again, sort of pushing out of that neighborhood, going to the next place over, seeing can we move beyond our own little realm, not as robots, as humans can we do this. And obviously you've spoken to multiple scientists, engineers, and so forth. What have they been saying about all that's been going on? Yeah, I mean, scientists as well as a lot of other people have pretty complicated feelings about this, right? A lot of lunar scientists really just want to go to the moon and get rocks, and it would be great if we could have astronauts picking up the rocks and bringing them back, because there's many, many scientific secrets you can get. The history of the solar system, the history of Earth, all sorts of information is contained in the moon that we don't have here on Earth scientifically. But, you know, it is expensive. We have a lot of other priorities. Our own planet has its own pressing needs. So many scientists are very into human exploration of space. Others advocate for robotic exploration or say we should be spending time and energy on our own planet. But no matter what you think about that, I think today's launch, it's going to be pretty pivotal in how people think about our place in the universe again, because we just haven't had that access to space in a very long time. Well, Alex, what a moment indeed. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Alex Whitsey there. And for all the latest updates on the Artemis One mission, look out for links in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing the mechanism of how a specific gene may be implicated in late-onset Alzheimer's. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Shamini Bundell. When it comes to scoring goals, the success of a football team doesn't just depend on sporting skills. Research on things like kit can also improve the safety and performance of the players. But most pieces of sports tech are optimised for men. A new report shows that elite women's football still has a long way to go before it matches the men's game when it comes to specifically tailored equipment. 
It highlights how so-called unisex football boots actually don't fit women that well and can even reduce performance and cause injury. There are also unknown health impacts of women's teams playing with footballs the same size and mass as the men's teams. Professionals also have to wear sponsored kit, which may not have an optimum sports bra for their build, again affecting performance. The authors highlight a lack of research in this area. A lot more work is needed, it seems, to really level the playing field. Dribble on over to the journal Sports Engineering for more. Stromatolites. These layered formations are sometimes considered the oldest evidence for life on Earth, as they could have been made by mats of ancient microorganisms. But proving that they were formed by biological and not simply chemical processes hasn't always been easy. Now a team of scientists has taken two- and three-dimensional images of the microstructure inside some stromatolites from Australia. One of the significant features they found were dome-like shapes. These are very similar to structures made by modern photosynthetic microorganisms as they grow towards the sun. The researchers say these findings make a convincing case for a biological origin, for these particular stromatolites at least. As well as being a fascinating glimpse of early life, this work could also aid the search for life on other planets. The conditions that the Australian stromatolites formed under are likely very similar to the environment on the edge of the Jezero crater on Mars, billions of years ago when there was an enormous lake there. The techniques used to analyse these rocks could also be applied to Martian specimens in the future. Find the full paper in the journal Geology. The main risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is age. But it's known that a number of genes also play a significant role. However, it's not been quite clear how they do so. Now, reporter Ali Jennings has been looking into a new paper that might reveal how one of these genes is involved in Alzheimer's. There are an estimated 50 million cases of Alzheimer's disease every year, and between 50 to 80% of the more common late-onset variety of Alzheimer's disease is inherited. It stems from genetic variation. The gene most strongly associated with late-onset Alzheimer's disease is called apolipoprotein E, or APOE for short, and it's the APOE4 version of the gene that's the major risk factor. And yet, despite APOE4's importance in causing late-onset Alzheimer's, it's still unclear how it actually does so. So we figure that if we can understand how APOE4 causes Alzheimer's disease, then we will really make a significant inroads in terms of understanding the pathophysiology of this very devastating disease. This is Li Hui Tsai, an Alzheimer's disease researcher from MIT. Li Hui and her lab have been working on APOE for around 10 years now. APOE encodes proteins that regulate the transport of fat molecules, called lipids, But studying this particular gene is not easy. There are many different kinds of lipids and different cell types usually have different cell type specific pathways regulating lipid metabolism and lipid plays different roles in different cell types. So it's just extremely complicated to deal with. So to unravel how APOE was working in Alzheimer's, Li Hui and her team 
had to turn to a number of different but complementary techniques. First, they took samples of human brain post mortem and measured how different brain cells expressed genes when they carried ApoE4, and one particular kind of brain cell stood out: oligodendrocytes. In oligodendrocytes, what we see is a very marked increase in cholesterol biosynthesis pathways, and that really caught our eyes because cholesterol biosynthesis is not, you know, known to be so active in oligodendrocytes. So we were very curious to know what's going on there. Oligodendrocytes use cholesterol to make insulating sheaths around neighboring neurons made of myelin. This myelination is important to allow neurons to fire properly. Under the microscope, it shows up as a ribbon-like structure. In the ApoE4 carrier's brain, this kind of nice ribbon-like cholesterol structure along the axon is diminished, and instead we kind of saw cholesterol sort of signal closer to the cell nucleus. So the localization of cholesterol seems to be abnormal in the brain. Not only is the cholesterol abnormally located within the oligodendrocytes, but it also seems to decrease the activity. Of genes involved in myelination, so ApoE4, by messing with cholesterol, seems to be linked to neurons having damaged myelin sheaths. This could decrease the speed of transmission between neurons, which might explain some of the cognitive deficits seen in Alzheimer's. Now, Li Hui had evidence that ApoE4, when expressed in oligodendrocytes, raised their cholesterol and inhibited their myelination. So the next question was. What could she do about it? So we want to find a way to say if we can, you know, reduce this accumulation of cholesterol inside the cells, whether we can rescue myelination. So the team turned to a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. They tried a number of drugs known to regulate cholesterol synthesis, including statins, but saw no effect. So instead, they tried a drug that promotes cholesterol transport. Cyclodextrin, and there, voila, we saw a significant decrease in the cholesterol accumulation inside this ApoE4 oligodendroglia. So we treated these mice with cyclodextrin for two three weeks, and then we saw the rescue of、uh, myelination abnormalities. But furthermore, these animals perform better. In a couple of memory tasks, and so the obvious question then is: Could this drug have therapeutic potential? It has potential. Yes, I would say this. This series of observations are very exciting. But like the most fascinating thing is, I think that they can actually have certain gene variants. So in the, this case, ApoE4, and that they can actually translate that into a, a dysfunction in these cells, and like show a. Possible mechanism of how this is working and how that mechanism is related to a risk gene for Alzheimer's disease. This is Carl Karlstrom from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, who has written an expert review of the new study. He's enthusiastic about the work. And another thing that is also like interesting is that they see this behavior with the accumulating cholesterol in the Alzheimer's disease diagnosed patients. But they also see this accumulation in undiagnosed patients. 
So it could well be that, okay, this is a mechanism that appears prior to, to clinical onset. If this ApoE4-linked myelination defect appears before clinical diagnosis, that might indicate this is part of the root cause of Alzheimer's disease, rather than an exacerbating factor. But as well as being excited by the findings, Carl says there are some things still to be clarified. For example, the protein ApoE codes for can be trafficked out of the cell where it's made, and affect other nearby cells. Li Hui has shown that the myelination problem stems from ApoE4 specifically in oligodendrocytes, but Carl notes that it's possible the ApoE protein could actually be working by targeting neighbouring neurons, which then feed back to trigger the effects in the oligodendrocytes. That's one route that future work could go into. But Carl thinks that this work also opens up many other new avenues to explore. How can this contribute to pathology in general? Is this something that is appearing in other diseases? We don't know. On the other hand, Li Hui is thinking about what this means for Alzheimer's disease more broadly. Whether this kind of lipid disruption is a general mechanism underlying uh, the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. I'm very curious about this question. And Li Hui feels that this work has opened her eyes to ApoE4's pervasiveness in the brain. You sort of feel that, you know, ApoE4 cannot escape you now. You know, you kind of see the fingerprint of ApoE4 on every cell type. That is extremely exciting for me. So perhaps in the future, we'll find more clues to uncover the mystery of Alzheimer's disease with ApoE's fingerprints all over them. That was Ali Jennings. You also heard from Lee Hoi Sai from MIT in the US and Carl Karlstrom from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. To find out more about this story, check out the paper and a News and Views article written by Carl in the show notes. As we talked about on the show last week, COP27, the UN's climate conference, is underway in Egypt. And to get a sense of what it's like at the conference this year, I'm joined by Flora Graham, Senior Editor of The Nature Briefing, who is at the event. Flora, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Then. So then, we're recording this on Tuesday. What's the mood like at the conference? Well, we're really in the thick of it now. I mean, a lot of people have been hard at it for a week already. And, you know, a week of late nights and conference sandwiches will tire anyone out. So I would say uh, there's a feeling of being in the dark forest of the narrative at the moment. But as always, the negotiators and the participants do become ready for long days. And I would say on the conference floor, there's still a lot of energy, especially in the youth pavilion. I walked in there today and I just felt, wow, this is where the magic is happening. There was a lot of chatting and smiling and laughing and the energy is definitely still there. Which is interesting to hear because there's been reports of perhaps a mood of uncertainty given the slowness of how some of the negotiations are going. You know, it's hard to say at this point because I think there's always a feeling of uncertainty at this point. And I think that will continue right up to the end to a certain extent. But I think that part of the uncertainty is coming from some of the issues that this COP is dealing with, which are very different from last year's in Glasgow of loss and damage, which we know has now been added to the agenda, dealing with questions of implementation, legislation, oversight, reporting. These are not necessarily glamorous topics, but they're absolutely essential. And then even beyond the walls of the conference itself, thinking about the human rights issues that have been raised over and over with regards to Egypt's hosting of the event. So I think that adds to a certain feeling of maybe 
tentativeness because everybody's very aware that you know we're kind of walking very gingerly through some difficult areas and what about the sort of conference setup itself then you were in glasgow for cop 26 how does this one compare maybe i mean some key differences are like obviously it's hot and it's in a desert so we're sitting in highly air-conditioned buildings a lot of these are temporary structures with very thin walls they're huge airplane hangar sized buildings and it does really create a bit of a jarring effect on the ground. But one big difference is, whereas in Glasgow, the booths were very much kind of segmented. So there might be an area that was majority country booths. There might be an area that was majority kind of private sector or non-governmental organizations. Of course, there's a little bit of a mix, but here it's really all mixed up. So you've got activists right next to companies, right next to countries, and it's interesting because it does give a little bit of a different feel. In some areas, it feels a little bit less utopian because you don't have this kind of parade of nations aspect. But the exhibitors I've talked to have not found that in any way detrimental. Most of them have said it's kind of just another cop once you get in through the doors. And what about the news that's coming out, Flora? What should we be keeping our eyes and ears out for in the forthcoming days? Well, one of the topics that I'm going to be writing about today in the briefing is really about this idea of the 1.5 degrees. Now, this is the Paris target to keep the increase in global temperatures below 1.5 degrees above what it was before industrialization. And this has always been an aspirational goal but nevertheless an extremely vital goal in terms of keeping some of the absolutely worst aspects of climate damage at bay. Now the debate today and the last few days between a lot of people is there's been a lot of data suggesting that 1.5 degrees might be out of reach that we've already put too much carbon into the atmosphere we're not on track to make the cuts required. We're certainly nowhere near any kind of carbon sequestration technology or anything like that that would turn that around super quickly. So there's a, an argument that if 1.5 degrees is out of reach, we should perhaps grasp the nettle, accept that, and really kind of double down our efforts on understanding what that means and what kind of mitigation and adaptation strategies might be necessary. Now, other people are absolutely diametrically opposed to that and are saying letting go of 1.5 degrees is a huge mistake and it's equivalent to giving up and it's equivalent to saying that some of these terrible effects of climate change are acceptable and that we must absolutely pursue 1.5 degrees and even redouble our efforts or recommit to that very ambitious target. Flora, there's been a lot of talk before and during the COP27 conference about about journalistic freedoms and things like that. What have you experienced now you're there? At the moment, we're living in that parallel world. I mean, Sharm el-Sheikh is already a bit of a parallel world within Egypt. It's a place that is built for tourist dollars to come in. It's quite far from Cairo. And I think there's a feeling that is often able to be maintained in these kind of countries where there's kind of two levels. You know, there's a level that's presented to the outside and there's a level that's able to be maintained in a certain way. And that's the one we're able to operate in. And I feel completely free to do as I like and say as I like within this conference. And then there's what might be going on outside these walls and outside Sharm el-Sheikh. So I think the difficulty for us as journalists is, you know, how do we participate in this conference in a way that gives our readers the very important information that they need without acting as a smokescreen for the things that are happening in Egypt that 
you know, are not to be swept under the rug in terms of human rights abuses and individual freedoms and press freedom. So that's a bit of a tightrope to walk. And that's one that we're, you know, going to do our best to face up to as honestly and directly as we possibly can. And finally then, Flora, you're at COP until the end of the conference working on the Nature Briefing, of course. And you've been asking for readers to get in touch. What are you looking for? It's important to us that we answer the questions that our readers have. And we will always dig deep into the science and how science influences these kinds of policy meetings. But we are very keen to hear any specific questions that our readers might have, any particular angles that they're very interested in. And I hope that they'll email me at briefing at nature.com and tell me what they want to read about. Nice one, Flora. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Flora Graham there. For the latest on what's been happening at COP, look out for links in this week's show notes. That's all for this week. As always, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.